O Lord, I ask now for clarity to speak your words to these, your people. Hide me behind your spirit and let your truth shine forth in our hearts today. Uh, Guide us in thinking your thoughts after you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We all love a good story. Uh, People flock to the movies, even in the midst of COVID scares. Uh, Scary stories are told around campfires, even when some of us know it will give us nightmares for days to come. Uh, A sound happening in the real world just before your alarm goes off will be interpreted by your dream and in your mind as part of the dream incorporated uh, into the story. We think in stories. We love stories. Most of the Bible is in the form of stories. The story of Jesus is so important that God thought we should get it four times. But what about us? Seemingly, our lives are not art. We cannot make sense of our story. Our spouse is crippled at work. Our children are killed in an auto accident. Our parents wither and decay and can't remember our names as they succumb to Alzheimer's. We lose our job and get underpaid at another. Life is a horrible, messy, icky, gross, cruel, scary place, and there seems to be no way to read our lives like we can read a story. How do we make sense of the muck that happens to us? My plan for today is this afternoon to read you a story that I can't make sense of. So turn with me to Numbers uh, 21, verses 4 through 9. And indeed, uh, this is a, an Old Testament story, uh, but I think you will see it is a conundrum. So ultimately, my goal is to say, what do you do when you can't read, when you can't figure it out, equally applicable to your life as it is to the Bible? Remember, the main thing that you should think of anytime somebody is going to start to read a passage to you or you're going to read in your quiet time or your Bible study time a passage of the Old Testament is 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul tells us that the main point of the Old Testament is that these are negative uh, types and shadows uh, for us of our lives. Uh, Some of these people are believers, uh, but they are immature and carnal, and we should aim to do better than they did. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, they set out on the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. But the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. 
So you recall the overall story of the Old Testament that Yahweh has called his people out of Egypt. The most singular event in the entire Old Testament, the parallel to the cross, the redemptive moment, the buying out of bondage that um, was the closest thing to the, the cross that the Old Testament has. That this is the defining story, God taking his congregation by the hand and leading them out, uh, out of death and slavery. But amongst those who are called, not all are really saved. And we've seen this. We've seen time and again where people have some radical conversion experience and they go down to the altar call and at some point, not too seemingly long later, like a dog returns to its vomit, they go back to the world. Their profession isn't uh, true, even though in this case, they saw the pillar of fire and uh, the, the, the cloud by day of Yahweh's physical presence with them. It, it, it doesn't matter. There are so many who perish in the desert because they don't truly believe. We're in the second half of that story in Numbers 21. So this is the 40 years of wandering around that they have been, you know, unfaith their parents were unfaithful, but now finally, finally, the promise, ooh, did I do that? Of, of 400 years is, is coming true. So let me just walk through the text with you uh, real briefly making some comments here. Verse four, they are leaving Mount Hor and circling around the land of Edom uh, because the king of Eden, who is just another name for Esau, uh, would not let them cross his land. So what happens? They become impatient. Literally, they get shortened in the Hebrew here. Uh, think of the English phrase, uh, short-tempered. Isn't it always just the most exasperating when you're so close? Like the most impatient time is five minutes before you're done waiting. Most uh, car accidents happen within five miles of the home. When your guard is down, I'm there, I'm done, I don't have to look out for crazy people. Yes, you do. You still need to look. You're, you're the crazy person at that point. <clears throat> the premature grabbing for the ending makes it go horribly wrong. And the people go horribly wrong in verse 5, and they complain against God against his appointed minister of their congregation. And worst of all, they say they regret being saved. They literally say, we wish you had left us in Egypt where they were slaves to die. Being a Christian, being saved is hard, but what level of complaining is this to say, I wish I had never been saved? That's, that's some really, really deep whininess. And you can see there, they go on like the most petulant of children. Uh, the Hebrew word for food is the same as the word for bread. So, so literally they say, there's no bread. And we hate this bread that we have, right? Like I'm reminded of the, the, the modern atheist, there is no God and I'm mad at him, is, is that they, they have this most ridiculous uh, whiny uh, attitude. Um, and, and this is manna. Psalm 78 calls it heavenly bread. Uh, Exodus 16 calls, says that it tastes like coriander. And basically, the way I read it, it's got like the texture of cotton candy. You're just, you're eating coriander cotton candy. And, and they're complaining. And verse 6 is God's response. He punishes their unbelief and rebellion in a unique way. Serpent bites. 
Notice that these serpents are called fiery. This could be because if you saw the hood of these snakes from behind, it looks like flames, and there are such snakes uh, around today in that part of the world. Or it could also be that the bite felt like fire in your veins. Think the worst fire ant bite you've ever had uh, times a thousand, and that's also true of the snakes in that region to this day. But this word fiery is very special. It's one of the incredibly few Hebrew words that has come into English. It is the word seraphim. If only by allusion, uh, these snakes are likened to the six-wing angels of Isaiah chapter 6. This is a very symbolic judgment upon them. Happily, verse 7 sees the people reacting much better than their parents' uh, generation did. They confess immediately upon being called out. Uh, they go to the person they send against, Moses, and they admit their guilt before him and before Yahweh. And they ask Moses to pray for them. Now, as, as Protestants, we're very quick to rightly claim the, the universal priesthood of all believers. But uh, as James 5.16 says, the effectual uh, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And we see that in verse 8. Uh, God relents and, uh, after Moses' prayer. Now, these are the most unusual directions from God. They are to make a carved image. You're supposed to gasp at that part there. They are to make a graven image. Oh, King James loving people here. And not just any graven image, but one of the devil. I mean, I mean a serpent that they are supposed to make and then look at it and be saved. And indeed, that's what happens in verse 9. Now, I'm not sure how you go about trying to read the Bible. For me, anytime I get given the once-a-year opportunity to come into a pulpit and to preach, uh, my goal is always to equip you to read this passage that I'm preaching from and, in general, how to read. I'm a teacher by trade, so I don't know how to turn that off either and stop thinking about equipping you. But I fear that being somebody living in 2021 here, your method for figuring out what does the Bible mean might be to go and buy commentaries to get uh, readers' versions of uh, the Bible and, and to turn to scholarship for how to find the meaning of passages. And these days, if you buy a commentary on Numbers or John or almost anything, you're going to get people from the school of thought where my teachers were from, uh, what is called the grammatical historical method of reading. Uh, that the way to find out what something says is to analyze the grammar and to analyze it in history. You just stick those two words together, make them adjectives, glue them together, and, and that's a school of thought. And these people will tell you the way to find out what a text in the Bible means, and therefore by extension what something in your life means, is to see who the original speaker was, who the original audience was, what they were trying to say to them, and then make an extension of application 
to yourselves. I put it to you this afternoon that that is not the primary way that Jesus himself wants us to read the Bible. My old mentor, uh, Dr. Robert Rayburn, uh, when he came to this passage, ultimately threw up his hands and said, I don't know what to do with this. I, I was shocked. I was shocked. This is 20 years ago. And I, I had, he, he had a library as big as this church. He had so many books. He owned every commentary. He read 60 hours uh, per sermon of just background work that he put in. I wouldn't exaggerate in a million years. But um, he, is, he, he, he did so much scholarly research. You can see why I went there. A nerd like me was attracted to a nerd church like that. And what, what, is, what are you going to do with this passage in Numbers? The closest precedent we have to any kind of making of some molten image, the closest thing that we're going to find to our passage is uh, Exodus 32 with the golden calf episode where the people were called out for the worst example of idolatry for thousands of years. This exact, exact bronze serpent that we just read about, they fall into idolatry of this very physical object in 2 Kings 18.4. That they have to smash it in the midst of Hezekiah's reforms because people were burning incense to this and genuflecting or I don't know what else. But that this was, this was a worshipped thing later. They fell into idolatry of this. What it, and worse yet, it's a snake. They just left Egypt where Pharaoh and Moses had a throwdown with the snakes and they literally could make sticks turn into moving living snakes. Their evil magic was so closely aligned to snake and you've seen Pharaoh's hat having a snake on it, just everything, Egypt, snakes. Raiders of the Lost Ark, that's your homework. Is that? <clears throat> and they seem to worship this. They seem to bow down and looking to this idol, this image, this graven image is what saves them. How, how are we supposed to make sense of this? What are we supposed to do? There's nothing there in the text that would let you read from what came before in order to make sense of what's happening now. You read through the Bible, Genesis to Numbers, what are you going to do with this passage? Well, hopefully you do something better than uh, your teacher's teachers, the, the seminary professors and the, and the book authors uh, would have you do, that by being a Christian, you know the nature of this book. You know that this book is like Jesus. That yes, these were human authors wrote as they were carried along. That, that the letters of Paul were letters that he wrote from him to the congregation at Ephesus. And yet when people read it, they knew right away, this is not just a letter. Yes, it is still fully a 100% human document from one man to one group is the, in the case of the letters of Paul, but it is also 100% divine. 
that God's purposes are not overruled by anything that we do, and that beyond our ability to understand what happened with when Paul took pen to paper and got a scribe to write for him to write these letters, or when Moses put pen to parchment, that yet that was still accomplishing the purposes of God and speaking to us all the way down today. Like Jesus, this book is 100% divine and 100% human. There's, there's more that we can find out than will take us 100 generations to find what the human authors meant. And my word, the last 200 years have found so many. I love archaeology. There's so many cool things that we've dug up. Two, two seconds. There's a, there was a guy just out plowing his field in Syria, and clunk, he ran into all of this entire library of Ugaritic, Canaanite texts that were there, and they just found whole libraries baked in, you know, they were stamped in clay, and it, and it just was, you know, for, for us, the fire is the worst news you could ever have for a library, but if you write in clay, fire is the best news for history, because your library just got baked in for good. <clears throat> so, like, the amount of stuff that we know now about archaeology and the ancient Near East, it's so cool. I don't hear me hating on the fruit of so much of the grammatical historical method. But it is also 100% divine. The Latin phrase, sensus plenier, the fuller meaning that we have on the other side of the cross that angels longed to peer into. The things that were not clear to the original audience can be clear to us. And in fact, that's what Jesus asks us to do. Turn with me to Luke 24, the end of the Gospel of uh, Luke, right there before John. This is some Reader's Digest large font up here on this one, but uh, so maybe the page before that. It's Easter Sunday. Uh, I'm going to start at 25, and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas are walking down the road to Emmaus. Jesus uh, has uh, been crucified, and they're kind of, he, he asks them what's up, and they kind of have this sort of wishy-washy, well, I kind of thought that he was going to be the Messiah, but like, I don't know. Jesus' uh, answer comes to them in 25. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Man, would it have been nice to be there that day and taken sermon notes on that one. Hint, it's called the New Testament. Uh, <clears throat> you have those notes. <clears throat> Skipping down to verse 44. Uh, this is, again, another group here. Notice it's all the, the dudes, the males here, who are slow to catch on. The women all get this. Uh, Jesus is the Messiah. The men have to take a personal appearance and a hand-holding here. Uh, verse 44, he said to the group of men uh, in that room, These are the words that I spoke while I was still with you, that everything written about me... In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Where's, where's the part where it's like, Jesus Christ will do this. He will be crucified, and on the third day he will rise. There's no verse like that. 
And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Notice our marching orders for how to read from Jesus. Everything is about him. This is not a surprise to you. I know Pastor Potter is taking you through Philippians. I'll, 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 I won't tread on, on his turf there. I'll quote Colossians 1, 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The purpose, the purpose of everything, the purpose of Pilgrim Hill, the purpose of your life, the purpose of everyone you know's life is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. The purpose of the story of Israel, the life of the world, is not some artifact that exists for its own sake. Yes, we can investigate these things and say, what properties do they contain? I teach science. God wants us to figure out the way the world works. He wants us to figure out the story of Israel from within. But everything exists ultimately for the glory of the Son of God, to be a gift to him. The whole universe, and especially preeminently us, the bride of Christ, exist as a present to Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. That's what our lives, our stories find their meaning in, their purpose in, and why you were created, why you were recreated, that is, redeemed, is to bring glory to Jesus Christ for forever. That's the meaning of our lives and the meaning of my text and every other text, ultimately. Turn, turn over with me here as, so, so it, to John chapter 3, um, the most famous text in the Bible. Now, it, it's very, it always saddens me how much uh, people it, <laughs> are biblically illiterate culture. You've seen the, the guys holding up the sign, John 3.16, and somebody else thought it was just a shout-out to their homie John, and so somebody else has the sign, Austin 3.16, or they, they, they have no idea. And, and yet, how much are we, as Christians, as Bible readers, able to follow Jesus' logic? Here's the guy that just told us how to read all of our Bibles in light of him. Let's just start at verse 10 here. John 3, starting at verse 10. Jesus is talking with Nicodemus. Nicodemus has no idea what he's talking about. You have to be born again. You have to be born from above. Jesus is amazed at this guy's stupidity. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Dude! Dude, I am telling you, I speak of, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, and you don't receive our testimony. If I were going to tell you about earthly things, and yet you didn't believe those, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have 
eternal life. Notice the way that Jesus talks. On the one hand, there's the grammatical historical way, the experience-based way of reading your life, which has merit, which has a place. But then there's the typological way of reading. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing right here. He's offering testimony about what he has seen in heaven. You can't build a tower up to heaven. You should be thinking of the Tower of Babel right there, Genesis uh, 11. Verse 13, Jacob saw a ladder coming down from heaven, but he couldn't climb it. Here's Jesus who came down that ladder to save us, but how does he get back up? By being lifted up on the cross and crucified for us, made to ascend like the bronze serpent in the wilderness, Jesus will be nailed to a pole and lifted high over the entire world, the Roman gibbet of execution, the most shameful way like a criminal sinner will he be publicly displayed for us to look at. The church used to know how to read the Bible this way. Here is Cyril of Alexandria from the fourth century in his uh, sermon series through the Gospel of John. This story is a type of the whole mystery of the Incarnation. For the serpent signifies bitter and deadly sin, which was devouring the whole race on earth, biting the soul of man and infusing it with the venom of wickedness. And there is no way that we could have escaped being conquered by it except by the relief that comes down from heaven. The word of God then was made in the likeness of sinful flesh that he might condemn sin in the flesh as it is written. In this way, he becomes the giver of unending salvation to those who comprehend the divine doctrines and gaze on him with steadfast faith. But the serpent, being fixed upon a lofty base, signifies that Christ was clearly manifested by his passion of the cross so that none could fail to see him. Some things in your life can be understood by looking backwards. Experience. Wisdom from life. It's not void. It's not nothing. God gave us two books, as the theologians say. The book of special revelation and the book of general revelation. I teach math. There's very little math in here. It's all things that we figured out that God wants us to sit around and scratch our heads and ponder deeply or go out and find physical laws of how science works or how to build a bridge, whatever. That's great and that's good and that'll get you a lot of mileage. Looking at Jesus, he's a man. There's a lot of things that you can learn from what is it to be a man about Jesus, but you can't learn everything that way. He's also the image of God, 100% Yahweh in the flesh. And your life, many things, will only be understood backwards, read from the ending as we live between the two comings of Christ. You have to look to him to find the meaning of so many things that are going on. In closing, I'll tell you the story of one very, very special uh, looking that happened, uh, the conversion of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. 
Many, many of you may know uh, this story. He was the greatest uh, preacher of uh, the 19th century English-speaking world. And when he was 16, he had gotten all of the testimony of his parents, the witness of so many good people pouring into his life, but he as yet wasn't a Christian. It just somehow hadn't clicked. And he was, as the teenagers say, shook. He was, he was bothered. Uh, Ella Fitzgerald would say bothered and bewildered. Uh, is, is that he set out to go to church every Sunday to find out what it was that he needed to do. And so it was on one uh, Sunday morning, uh, he set out uh, in the midst of just a downpour of snow uh, in England. He knew there was something seriously wrong with his life, but he didn't know how to fix it. Now, 16 sounds young, but Spurgeon was brilliant. So probably ought to go with 32 in your mind if you want to think of people just like in the days before email, millions of people read his sermons every month by mail, snail mail, if you don't know what I mean, kids. Uh, He he was a deep thinker, a great orator. Uh, At 20, he was already one of the most famous preachers in the world, so make the necessary adjustments. He comes upon this little, he can't get to his church. He's he's walking through the, the snow, it's coming up to his way, it was just a dump of snow. And so he decides to just go into the one on the way, this primitive Methodist church. I'm not being insulting. That was, the, that was a denomination. It was primitive Methodist. <clears throat> and the minister had not made it. The pastor had not been able to get there. Presumably, uh, Spurgeon later writes, uh, from the snow as well. So here's Spurgeon. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or that, something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. And it is well that preachers should be educated because this man was really stupid. (laughs) I'm quoting. Uh, He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he could say very little else. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. There it was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. The preacher began, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It just says, look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, but you can learn to look. And then the text says, look unto me. I, said he in broad Essex accent, many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text by saying, look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend into heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. When he'd gone about that length and managed to spin it out to about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. And he looked at me from the gallery. And I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Fixing his eyes upon me, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I had not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit about my appearance. 
<clears throat> However, it was a good blow, and it struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death, if you continue to not obey my text. But if you obey it now, right this moment, you will be saved. And then, lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could, Young man, look! Look to Jesus Christ! Look! 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 You ain't have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up and the people only had to look and be healed. So it was with me. I've been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it was to me. Oh, and I looked, and I looked until I could have looked my eyes out. And at that moment, I saw the sun. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we pray that we would be struck with adoration again today and all this week to look to you, to fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ and to see him everywhere that all things were made for his glory, and in him we live and move and have our being. Let us see everything there is on, through his eyes, through him with eyes that are focused on him. Our sin drove him to the cross. The love that he bears us gladly sent him there on our behalf, and the fate of the world was changed forevermore. Help us to read our Bibles, to read our lives as he taught us, seeing him behind every page. Give us faith to believe that the end of all our stories is found in him and that the end will backfill every tear of our lives and every woe with a different color for all eternity when we are there looking our bridegroom face to face. In his name we pray.